Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And as some of you know, the Quillette podcast occupies what I think is a unique place in the podcasting sphere. On one hand, we cover a lot of culture war issues, usually from what I would call a liberal but woke skeptical perspective, although I generally don't like to use the word woke for reasons that I've discussed on Quillette.com. But we also cover history and science and technology and a whole bunch of other issues. My boss, Claire Lehman, and I have never wanted to turn this thing into just another series of weekly rants about the dreary and sanctimonious nature of doctrinaire progressive hashtagging. Although, yeah, I kind of gave you a little mini rant right there, didn't I? Anyway, sometimes we really do have to step into the trenches, and this week's guest is an example. Those of you who've been following Heather McDonald's career will know that the Manhattan Institute Fellow and City Journal contributing editor is an uncompromising culture warrior, someone who was anti-woke long before that term became popularized. Loyal listeners to this podcast will have heard her hold forth on these themes way back in 2018, when I interviewed her in her Upper East Side apartment for Quillette Podcast number 5, if you can believe it. That was more than 200 podcasts ago. Heather McDonald's new book is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. It is an unapologetic broadside against race-conscious policies that now serve to impose quotas, diversity statements, and self-flagellating anti-oppression rituals in pretty much every sphere of academia, activism, arts and letters, and even medicine and technology. We talk about all of these issues, but my principal focus is on what I see as Heather's real passion opera, classical music, theater, literature, and other areas of so-called high culture. As we discussed, it's her love of Western civilization's legacy in these areas which has driven much of her impassioned campaign, now spanning decades, against social justice orthodoxies that now serve to suppress and sometimes bastardize some of the greatest creations in the Western cultural canon. What do you want this book to achieve? And I say that as somebody who agrees with you a lot, I mean, the people who believe that aggressive, call it what you want, racial equity, DEI, they're kind of unshakable in their convictions. And as you abundantly illustrate in the book, they are also ruthless with detractors whom they often accuse of being bigots in the thin disguise of libertarians or traditional liberals or whatnot. Who, apart from the people who already agree with this book, do you think might be influenced by what you say here? What I'm trying to do is provide an alternative explanation to the left's narrative that if there is any racial disparity in any institution, it is by definition the product of racism. And I am arguing that no, that explanation is way premature. The real reason that we do not have 13% black engineers at Google, say, or 13% oncologists Uh, working in a cancer research lab, 13% being the share of the the share of the U.S. population in the United States that is black. The reason is a vast academic skills gap. So that's the thesis. Those are the facts that I'm providing. I also do the same with regards to the criminal justice system. In the criminal justice system, 
it's not a question of the underrepresentation of blacks and other so-called underrepresented minorities, which is basically Hispanics, because Asians don't get to count as people of color. Well, because, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. Okay, but in the case of the criminal justice system, what we see there is the overrepresentation of blacks. They constitute about a third of the nation's prisoners in the federal and state systems. And in that case, again, the left looks at any kind of law enforcement data, whether it's police stops, police arrests, or proportion of prisoners, and says, per se, racism. That overrepresentation is per se racism. I argue that it is a result of disparities in criminal offending. So who's going to be able to use the data in this book and the arguments? I think there's a lot of people who don't know the facts. It's You may feel, Jonathan, that everybody knows about the reality of urban crime in the United States. The rule of thumb in the United States is if there's a crime story and the race of the suspect is not reported, you can assume he's black because if the race of the suspect had been white, it would have been reported. And you were an early adopter on this issue. I mean, you've been writing about this long before BLM. However, the bulk of your book is not about crime. It's about things like music and theater and opera. I think a lot of people, and again, this goes back to my question, like your audience, I think a lot of people are going to say, okay, look, surely it's okay to do like a BLM themed opera or Beethoven adaptation, which is one thing you talk about. You know, Swan Lake is this fusty old thing. Who cares if that gets bastardized so that we can introduce politics into it? How do you respond to people who say that that's fine because it's a small symbolic price to pay for the furtherance of racial equity? I hope you're playing devil's advocate, (laughs) Jonathan. Okay. I'm only half playing devil's advocate because it absolutely is true that on a practical level, because we're talking about, again, going back who your book is, is aimed at, on the practical level of arguing with people, of trying to persuade people, the question of what they put back to you is not merely hypothetical. And and this one hears this a lot. Like here in Canada, where I'm talking to you from, there's this adage that's used, this two-word phrase that says, representation matters. Those two magic words, representation matters, have been used to create all manner of unwatchable programming here in Canada, where you can just tell that the whole script, the whole premise of the show was front-loading whatever racial hashtag is is on Twitter at the time of production, non-binary this, drag queen that. And when you push back on it, they say, oh, well, this is about representation. And that claim is seen as unanswerable. Yeah, it's partly devil advocate. But when you do have NPR tote bag types who come at you and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you think representation matters? How do you think this book will convince them to adopt your framework? Well, if they don't understand the preciousness of our civilizational inheritance, that it comes out of a radically different world. And for that very reason, its very difference is why it is precious, because we will never be able to re-enter the spiritual mindset, the emotional, the intellectual mindset that created 18th century opera seria. So Handel's Messiah, this is in your book. This is something that was declared at a composer's forum in June 2020. You are complicit in racism if you perform Handel's Messiah. So tell me about the vision, the worldview that went into Handel's Messiah that can't be recreated except by staging an artistically faithful rendition. The music speaks to an entire way of being, a belief in grandeur, in nobility, 
an ecstasy of expression, a possibility of reaching harmonious balance in life that is not the primary values in our world today. It allows you to enter somebody else's mind, in this case, Handel, and trace the movement of his soul. would never be created today. It is a foreign idiom, and it is, for many people, the, the classical idiom is actively repellent. And what I find so utterly infuriating about our classical music leaders in the post-George Floyd world, classical music and all of the arts went into an absolute psychotic collapse after George Floyd, like every other institution, is that they are betraying the legacy that it is their privilege to curate and to pass on by telling young people above all to look at these traditions through the lens of sex and race and present concerns. <laughs> the The handle quote was because he was discharged by a former National Public Radio announcer was based on the fact that Handel was paid for a commission in stock in a slave trading company, which he temporarily held. And that is is used to cancel one of the greats of the Western tradition. That is absurd. The, the guy making that claim is a nobody. He has no claim to any kind of artistic intellectual accomplishment. And yet the instinct and power of our age today of young people, these yahoos that are canceling things they've never even experienced is the power of negation, which is extraordinarily inebriating. It fills the, the mob with a sense of, of absolute godlike power to tear down. That's all they can do. We can write all the George Floyd operas we want right now. And, and believe me, they are being commissioned at a unbelievably rapid. Wait, seriously? There's, there's George Floyd operas? Oh, absolutely. There's George Floyd operas. There's Breonna Taylor operas. There's all sorts of works now about Black Lives Matter. There's a madrigal about microaggressions. So look, for all I know, some of these Black Lives Matter operas, hey, they may be good. Hey, if you had told us 20 years ago, there's going to be this rapping musical about Hamilton, which I just saw here in Toronto, which is going to be amazing. People would have laughed at you. But even for the sake of argument, if none of these George Floyd operas are any good, even if that's the case, won't this moment pass? Like you talked about this one, it actually sounds quite cringy adaptation of Beethoven that was set like in a prison and it had this whole social justice thing. But it also sounded like something that's going to play for like three days. And then people go back to producing traditional stuff, which is what audiences want to see anyway. Isn't this movement, it's like a cyclical thing. It comes, people signal that they don't want to see it. It grows tiresome and then it goes away. Well, I have no objection to the creation of George Floyd operas. If you want to write an opera about George Floyd, do it. 
do not say that Beethoven's Fidelio is about George Floyd. It's not. This is a trend that's been going on in Europe and the United States for a long time, known as Regietheater, which is German for director's theater, where a talentless director <laughs> decides to commandeer a work from the past and impose his own totally predictable political views on that work because he has no capacity himself to create something anew. So he's going to dragoon Mozart or Beethoven or Handel or Verdi into serving as a high-profile vehicle for his own little anti-capitalist, anti-heteronormativity screed. The problem with that is the audience that is coming, this may be their own exposure to Fidelio, and they will have no clue what that opera was about. It was about, Beethoven was absolutely infused with enthusiasm for the Enlightenment project of liberty, of freedom. He was anti-despotism. It's a signal work in the history of intellectual development, political development, and it is important to see it as Beethoven wrote it. So again, write that opera, try and get that produced, and you will get it produced. Black composers are writing their ticket right now, as are black performers, many of whom are deserving anyway. And it's not as if the classical music world has discriminated for the last 50 years against black performers. They've been ubiquitous in opera and are more so now in orchestral positions, but the the classical music world has tried to do outreach and fellowships and to get more blacks into orchestras. So this is not a racist profession. But anyway, I find your questions, frankly, weird to try and get an author to justify his writing based on the most recalcitrant audience. I think that there surely are people out there who are open to understanding why the trashing of Western art and our our cultural tradition is something that should be seen as consequential for civilization as what we're doing to law enforcement and what we're doing to science and medicine. In the course of your answer, I think you articulated an important presumption, which is you're not just arguing against bastardization of beautiful artistic institutions. You also want to defend the values on which those traditional artistic media were created. But the people on the other side of this debate, they actively reject a lot of these ideas, the idea of the Enlightenment, of the ideal of nobility and such celebrated by 18th century composers. So to the extent your book argues that when we bastardize these works of art from that period, we're also undermining our appreciation of those values, or at least our ability to time travel into an era when those values were celebrated, the people on the other side of this debate, they see that as a feature, not a bug. 
So to the extent you're arguing, oh no, we're missing this precious chance to celebrate the values that Beethoven liked, your opponents are like, yeah, that's awesome. This is why I'm maybe more pessimistic than you in the degree to which a book like this can convince many of the people who certainly hear. Well, believe me, you cannot overdo me in pessimism. I am (laughs) people such as myself who have been trying to preserve culture for the last 40 years have not won any battles. Does that mean I don't feel like I need to fight any longer? Remind Remind me how you know so much about music. I grew up playing the piano. I grew up attending the L.A. Philharmonic Sunday matinees with my family as a child. I have been seduced by this music. It has given me the greatest joy in my life. I have been involved in in classical music, listening, whether it's falling in love for the first time with, with Mozart's Don Giovanni in college, which is my first exposure to opera. <laughs> or listening in high school with utter passion to discovering the great romantic piano quartet and quintet literature or discovering the Schubert song cycles, Die Schöne Müllerin and and Winterreise, the St. Matthew Passion by Bach, all of these have been absolutely essential to my life. So this is personal for you. Well, yeah, it's it's personal, but it's also, I think it's civilizational. And the West is only doing it to itself. It has a, an amazing set of double standards with regards to other civilizations. I talk about a exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I contrast its treatment of its own collection of Dutch Baroque masterpieces from the 17th century. These are artists Vermeer, Halls, Rembrandt. And it is applying the deconstructive hermeneutics of suspicion now to Western art. That is, it's teaching us to see in these gorgeous canvases some subtext justifying slavery or colonialism, art historical readings that have nothing to do with the formal composition of the painting and are in most cases just preposterously imposed on a canvas. At the same time, the Met, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, treats African art with immaculate respect and sensitivity. It it portrays Benin bronzes, warrior bronzes, says nothing about the slaughter that these princes of Dahomey, the, the predecessor of the of Nigeria, inflicted on their enemies, this enslavement, the child sacrifice. Instead, the art is regarded formally with respect. China is not canceling itself because its traditions, whether it's in Chinese classical opera or court painting, is primarily Chinese, exclusively Chinese. I would love to see African art museums engage in critique of their own involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, this is uh, getting a little far afield. But going back to Rembrandt, we actually had a traveling exhibit come to the National Gallery here in Canada. This is in 2021. A lot of people were excited to see it. What they were a lot less excited to see was that the curators had decided to juxtapose completely irrelevant images and commentaries about the very real horrors of of slavery and such. But the pretext was, and I'm going to read it, this is still on the website of the National Gallery of Canada, this is on the, the page for the Rembrandt exhibit, 
Today, we recognize that European colonization of North America and other parts of the world brought terrible suffering to indigenous and black people who were exploited, enslaved, or stricken by disease. This exhibition, again, of Rembrandt, offers a chance for fresh, inclusive perspectives on the European tradition and its legacy. Alongside the art of Rembrandt and his colleagues, the installation features works by contemporary black and indigenous artists who respond to this history. And so, of course, it's absolutely true that all sorts of horrible things happen in this history. But the idea that somehow, while enjoying the magnificent works of Rembrandt, I should also be summoning to mind all these things which are like really not relevant. I mean, I actually disagree with you about African art. Like if I want to see beautiful African art in a museum, I absolutely do not want it to be accompanied by essays about how horrible the African leaders were at the, the time. I don't think it's possible to appreciate art if you're trying at the same time to fill your mind with every imaginable sociopolitical lesson associated with the society around it. I was making the point that we employ double standards, that the West only applies this deconstructive critique of dissolving an aesthetic experience into a predictable self-flagellation of colonialism to itself. It could apply the exact same arguments to other cultures, and it doesn't. This is a form of bizarre cultural suicide and self-cancellation. It is amazing. And Rembrandt, the Rice Museum in Amsterdam did the same thing. It went through its peerless collection of Baroque Dutch art and put 80 wall texts on that was all about slavery. And its, its most damning effort was at the masterpiece of its collection, which is Rembrandt's Night Watchman, portraying the city guard in Amsterdam of, of burghers that were protecting the city. It's a, it's a massive canvas. The individuals within it are all individually portrayed. There's movement in it. And the critique was that it contained no black people. Well, the population, the black population of Amsterdam at that time was probably 20 or, or 30. So there's 28 figures, I believe, in the, in the canvas to have a proportional representation of blacks, according to the population of Amsterdam, would give you like 0.00001% of a black person. Please pardon this short interruption to the Quillette podcast. However, I did want to remind you that for more great Quillette content, including our latest essays, reviews, and blog posts, please visit Quillette.com. Also, I wanted to let you know about the brief musical interludes that we've inserted to illustrate some of Heather MacDonald's musical references. They include, in order, the Royal Choral Society singing the famous chorus from Handel's Messiah in 2012, an excerpt from a 1953 performance of Beethoven's Fidelio, sampling the quartet Mir ist so wunderbar, I hope I'm getting that pronunciation right, and highlights from Don Giovanni, performed by the Metropolitan Opera in 2014. And now back to the Quillette podcast. I think a lot of people who live outside the United States, but who follow the culture wars in the United States, might be a little mystified by where Asians figure into all this stuff. Because on one hand, they're supposed to be the victims of white supremacy, just as much as black people or Hispanics. On the other hand, if you look at the socioeconomic indicators, including admission to extremely selective schools, Asians often top out much higher than, than white people. Could you cast a little bit of light on that for us? You know, on, on college campuses, many of the Asian students are 
are as leftist as anybody else, even though they're absolutely screwed by racial preferences. And they yearn to be part of the great sort of royally victimized student of color population, because that's how you get status. And so they kind of ask, can we, sir, please, sir, could we please also be students of color? And the answer comes back very firmly, no, you are not students of color, because to be a student of color is by definition to be an underperforming student. I mean, that's that's what the phrase means. Uh, students of color, are those who are not keeping up academically because they have been admitted with these vast preferences that create mis academic mismatch and put them at a disadvantage. Asians, on the other hand, have to be better than everybody else to squeeze in to an ever-diminishing window of opportunity. I would say that what has changed in our racial discourse in the United States is that in the 90s, it was occasionally possible to talk about or refer implicitly to the cultural breakdown in the inner city that is responsible for these academic skills and crime gaps, that's all out now. You cannot talk about the anti-acting white culture, which absolutely depresses Black student effort and student achievement. You cannot talk about Black crime rates, although that was also pretty taboo in the 1990s. But I would say that the discourse around race has become, especially in the post-George Floyd world, because that was when the entire American elite society just, as I say, went into complete toxic shock and declared that every institution was racist. Well, so in one sense, there are things you can't say about race, but in other senses, you can be completely candid. I was surprised you you mentioned in your book that there's a website you can go to that's an online calculator where you input some of your criteria to see if you can gain admission to medical schools and you put in your GPA and your MCAT and I think you said the only other variable you stick in is your is your race. Is it really that set in stone what these standards are at these schools? Yeah, it's absolutely but that that website is not indicative of any kind of national honesty about the ubiquity of racial preferences. We here in the United States have this bizarre doublespeak where on the one hand, if you say on a college campus that we have a system of racial preferences here, many people, many students are benefiting from it. Many faculty are benefiting from it as well. And if you, you know, suggest that there's academic difficulties that result because of the so-called preferences, you will be stigmatized, turned into a pariah. Uh, so we pretend we pretend that racial preferences do not exist. And at the same time, the university leaders are now going around saying, if you take away racial preferences in our campus, the whole school will fall apart because we won't be able to get a diverse population. So it's a completely contradictory message. And yet human beings are able to to keep in their heads, apparently, utterly self-contradictory principles. Some of your most memorable vignettes in the book deal with those who have tried to push back even gently against some of the taboos you're describing. And just as you were telling that last flourish, uh, the name that popped into my mind was, was Edward Livingston. He was an editor at JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. And you talk about what happened when he very gently suggested that racism wasn't an all-explanatory variable for 
some of the phenomena. Uh, I think they were talking, he was on a podcast, I think. Could you explain what happened to him? Because there's a hundred stories like this in the book. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but I think this is a good stand-in for 99 others. Livingston, a surgeon at the University of California, Los Angeles, and also an editor of the some web versions of the Journal of American Medical Association, which used to be one of the premier journals of scientific research, publishing cutting-edge work that physician scientists the world over would look to to try and advance well, their own Well, presumably it still is, right? I mean, that's not fair. Presumably JAMA is still a leading journal, right? I mean, even if it's got stuff like this in it. Well, it's it's heavily clouded. I mean, I don't know what its standards are at this point because it has declared that it is interested in the race of researchers. And, you know, it is going to have a barrier to research that is the result of white or Asian male researchers. So I don't know what its standards are at this point. They've put somebody in now who has said her her primary interest is in racism research. So what she's going to be looking at uh, with regards to pure science, I don't know. But in any case, Livingston was hosting a podcast with somebody from a, a New York hospital on this idea of systemic racism as being the cause of racial health disparities. And Livingston said, you know, I grew up in a family that absolutely deplored discrimination, civil rights activists. You know, there is no way that I am myself racist and I don't believe the most doctors are. But if we couch our our whole discourse as anti-systemic racism, you're going to lose people that would otherwise be on board your efforts to say we should have make sure that opportunity is more equally available. And so there are systemic problems in poor neighborhoods. It's not the problem of racism, but it may be that there are pollutants, you know, particulates coming out of bus routes. Trucks was the example going through uh, poor neighborhoods. Right. So he said, so maybe, you know, we should just try to move the discourse towards look at we we do have problems of unequal opportunity and keep the systemic racism thing out well so for that he was absolutely attacked he was immediately taken off jama he was fired the podcast was disappeared from the web a higher up at jama another editor went into the usual apology mode of groveling before this guy's accusers. Livingston went back to UCLA and faced a star chamber from his fellow faculty merely for saying that we don't need to be talking about systemic racism all the time. His boss at JAMA, Bauchner, again, like could see the writing on the wall that he may be next on the chopping block. And indeed he was. He said, you know, he didn't even, the, the title of the podcast was something like, Doctors are not racist, so how can there be systemic racism in medicine? Well, that was just way, way too cheeky. And so even though he hadn't titled the podcast or didn't even know about it, he too was fired. And as I say, the person that replaced him is, uh, as, as, an, as a black activist said, it was inevitable that it would be a black female. And sure enough, that's who they got. And she is, her whole thing is uh, researching racism in medicine. One of the examples you talk about in the book is it's kind of interesting because it's it's one of these cases where the need to appear anti-racist is actually at cross purposes with the life-saving measures required to actually help black people. And I'm thinking of the example here where 
the American Nephrology Institute or something to do with kidneys and diabetes, they had segmented their data in a way that took account for certain congenital differences in mortality rates between whites and blacks in terms of kidney function. But that was seen as racist because it's like, I don't know, one step away from eugenics to talk about this stuff. And so I think they stopped that data classification system, even though it was highly germane to the epidemiology of kidney disease in blacks. Am I getting the details right in that? Yeah, there was a test for kidney function that controlled for the fact that black patients respond to certain treatments and test differently. And so a reading of a kidney function test that didn't control for race would be not as accurate as doctors would like. And so they threw out this correcting variable and put in a different type of test that is much less effective and efficient. But nobody taking the test, the original test, even knew, you know, necessarily what how how doctors were were modifying it. It did nothing to enforce what we're supposed to believe is systemic racism. This was purely something that was highly clinical, highly abstruse within the medical world. But the people that are out there on the warpath trying to find any hint of anything that contradicts the progressive narrative uh, just said this has to go. I thought you were going to say the other way that it affects Black lives is it is now completely taboo to talk about behavior of any group, that personal responsibility, behavior that may contribute to life outcomes. So the only allowable explanation now for racial disparities in health outcomes is doctor racism, systemic racism. You are not allowed to say that obesity is not a good thing for your health. My sense as a layperson here is that because maybe the incidence of obesity is higher in black people, the whole public discussion about obesity is now subject to censorship. Yes, that is why we have the whole anti-fat shaming crusade, why you have Scientific American, other medical journals coming out with the utter lie that obesity is actually health affirming. It's just insane. This is killing people. It's killing people. There's like a hundred diseases that are linked to obesity. And the reason for that crusade is exactly what you say, Jonathan, which is that blacks do have a higher rate of obesity. If there was not a racial difference, I think we still would have been honest about obesity. I am against fat shaming. Fat, I think we can all agree fat shaming is bad. However, concern over obesity is not the same. Well, it depends on how, yeah, I mean, it depends on how you define it. Uh, But in any case, it is now taboo to say that there are things that individual patients can do to further their own health. So Scientific American, they came out with an entire issue devoted to racism, and it had an article in it saying that it was racist to tell uh, black females in particular that they should lose weight if they were obese. That was racist. So you are, again, guaranteeing that they are not going to be able to be in control of their health outcomes and and doing the most they can to make sure that they don't have heart disease and diabetes. And so doctors can't talk about doing a better job of keeping healthcare appointments. This is a real problem with inner city patients. Prenatal care is also very spotty. Postnatal care is very spotty. But you're not allowed to talk about any of that. And and they're putting all of their bets on 
the reason for racial health disparities is a systemically racist health system. Well, if that's wrong, and it turns out that actually behavior has a very large role to play, you're just basically saying we're not going to make progress on black health. And, you know, with the whole COVID issue, Oprah Winfrey made a whole documentary claiming that the black death rate from COVID, which was higher than whites, was also due to racism. Even though we had here in the United States preferential distribution of anti-COVID medications and vaccines, uh, minorities were getting priority. We had a situation here in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about an hour outside Toronto, where they set up clinics where you had to be BIPOC in order to get vaccinated. At the same time, they were also saying that resistance to vaccination was also from white supremacists. The whole debate became so crazy. In fact, our own prime minister, Justin Trudeau, he gave an interview on a French television station where he said that resistance to vaccines was a symptom of racism and sexism. And I don't know if you had that in the United States where, well, black people and indigenous people are reluctant to get vaccinated because of the legacy of racism and all these experiments that were done and, and they, they have all this suspicion to, to medicine because it's racist. But also if you're an anti-vaxxer, it means you're a racist. Progressives couldn't even get their line straight on this one. I don't think it did the vaccination campaign any good to tie this issue up with racism. It actually, I think, hurt public service messaging on vaccines when the, these two issues got conflated. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure that all you nice White Canadians just went along with the priorities for BIPOC people. I kind of did, yeah. What am I going to do? Show up at the vac station and say, I may be white. There but- <laughs> should have been a protest. The politicians should have stood up for it. But there is white calling going on. I mean, let's just face it. That is the goal in institutions is to diminish the number of whites. Heather, that's ridiculous. It's not eugenics. No, it's not eugenics. But that is absolutely white calling is the order of the day. I write about this with the Art Institute of Chicago. They're, the whole po- reason they got rid of their entire volunteer docent program because they were white. I remember that. Institutions go around bragging of the fact that they have lowered their white population in their institution. But in any case, let me just return Oprah Winfrey. Wait, wait, let's put a book back on that. The reason I piped up about the culling thing, because here in Canada, we had some host out in BC, a media host talk about how not wearing masks was a form of eugenics. Whenever the language gets like that, culling evokes a, a morbid metaphor that I don't think is helpful. Okay, well, there is preferences in society being doled out on the basis of race. Yes, agreed. There are institutions that are showing priorities, and it's not just about employment. It's not just about hiring. It is now on the basis of the very distribution of life-saving medicine. That is a problem. That is not what the promise of equality is about. Now tell me about Oprah Winfrey. So Oprah Winfrey argues that the higher Black death rate from COVID is due to doctor racism. She is impugning the entirety of the medical system. The reason that there's higher Black death rate from COVID was for the same reason as everybody else. Everybody, If you're obese, you're at much higher rate. Never talked about, but that was one of the biggest predictors. But nevertheless, that's one of those behavioral aspects that nobody is allowed to talk about now. And yes, one of the largest rates of vaccine hesitancy was among Blacks. The Tuskegee experiment, which was a syphilis experiment, that was many decades ago. 
That is not the reality today, but instead, Blacks are being told by people like Oprah Winfrey that the medical system is racist. So they're contributing to the very vaccine hesitancy that they would otherwise deplore. I do want to end on a note of hope. So my note of hope, okay, is that here in Canada, you're starting to get minorities themselves. Are we allowed to say minorities? I forget. BIPOC people are, are pushing back on this. We had a story this was a year or two ago, but a person of color who was an eminent researcher in Canada, his research is in something to do with lasers and uranium processing, like high-tech stuff. He went public and said, I cannot get funding for my lab because getting that funding requires that I sign a diversity statement that says how my research will help end racism and advance the representation of the minorities. He says, I am a minority and my laser research isn't going to do anything to help black people or whatnot. I just want to advance the cause of science and I can't fill out these forms in an intellectually honest way. So it started a conversation. So it's minorities themselves, people who have a lot more moral capital than you or me, because they're not white and they're entrepreneurs, they're scientists. And they're saying, this, this is hurting my field. This is hurting my operations. You're doing too much. And, and in your book, you actually have a chapter. It's called abstainers. It's people who are piping up to say enough. There's a story from Tulsa that I thought was interesting. The Tulsa Opera is a extraordinarily left-wing progressive institution. The head of it, Tobias Picker, who's a, a composer, was one of the first to cast a trans singer in Mozart's Don Giovanni. He's also writing an opera about the first trans person to get gender transitioning. So this is not somebody who's in any kind of traditional mode. And the Tulsa Opera created a program to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre in 1921 that began with a still not quite understood incident between a black and white teenager in an elevator It led to a rampage in the Greenwood section of Tulsa, which was the black business section and and middle-class housing section. So for the 2021 anniversary, Tulsa Opera was commissioning works from a whole range of black composers. And one of the composers that they reached out to was a man named Daniel Beard Rumain, who was given the plum assignment of writing something for Denise Graves, a great mezzo-soprano who was well-known in the 1990s for her portrayal of Bizet's Carmen. And any composer would just give anything to be able to write something for Denise Graves, given that she was very prevalent on the international opera circuit. She's less performing now just because of her age, but she's still a great singer. So Romain, who has made a career of going around claiming that White musicians should lose their contracts and lose their tenure, and he wants to write on the basis of race just for Black performers in orchestras. Rather, he doesn't want to write music for white performers. He's you know, definitely out there in his anti-racism self-promotion. So he wrote, a, he wrote his work for Denise Graves that ended with the lines, God damn America. (laughs) And Graves came back and said, you know, the values here don't comport with my outlook. And she asked for revision of those lines. 
And that's something that opera singers have been demanding from composers for all of history. Composers have been just lackeys to the whims of self-indulgent star opera narcissist. And, and so it's assumed that you don't get the final say as a composer. Well, Remain amazingly played the race card. He ignored the fact that Denise Graves was black who wanted the revision. He ignored the fact that the other guy that was setting up this concert besides Tobias Picker, who is white, was Howard Watkins, who's a black assistant conductor at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. And he said, well, this sort of thing of asking me to revise is just what you get when you have a white person running a music program. And they never should have allowed Tobias Picker, who's the director of Tulsa Opera, to do this in the first place. And Howard Watkins, the black conductor, said basically remains out of his mind. This has nothing to do with race of of us or graves. It just has to do with wanting to conform the work to what she's comfortable singing. So they did not back down. And so Romaine walked off in a huff and eventually produced it, made a, a, a video shot in Central Park in New York City with a very, very radical black soprano named Janai Bridges. And it's still available. And a, a black conductor said to me, well, he thinks the real reason that Denise Graves didn't want to sing this work was not necessarily the sentiments conveyed, but it was just such a mediocre piece of music, which it is. It's it's sort of this new age noodling, incredibly simplistic and banal. But Remain then went on to race hustle as much as he could. But Picker went on and they I, I watched the entire show, the program on YouTube, which I'm sure is available. It contained marvelous works by contemporaries and some older composers, a gorgeous song by Adolphus Hale Stork, I just heard a work of his at the New York Philharmonic, also marvelous. And surprisingly, most of the works were free of a real racial venom. They were much more about love, about uplift. So Tobias Picker's left standing and and remains out, you know, doing more of his racial. So of course, Remain hasn't been hurt either. He's been made the artistic director of numerous artistic musical organizations. But still, it was good that Tulsa Opera didn't cave in. And whether there's going to be more of that coming, I would say my optimism comes from legislation. It turns out that you actually can, if you're controlling the purse strings to public universities, you can say, we don't want taxpayer dollars wasted on these unnecessary diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies, I think that's perfectly appropriate. Heather McDonald's new book is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. It's published by Daily Wire Books. Heather McDonald, thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 